Welcome everyone. What we're going to do tonight is, with your help, is we're going to do an experiential evening of meditation music. Where we're going to use the music as a vehicle. Where in the words of Kabbalah, a, a chariot in which to hopefully take us to a higher level of consciousness. And in the course of the evening, we're going to be learning things. And then the idea is to meditate on them through the music. And we're going to learn how music itself is a meditation. So how can you start an evening about music without music? So we'll start with music. That's where to start.
So the truth is, I don't know uh, what you know. And for those who have been learning with, with David, I don't know what he's taught you. So some of this might be a repetition. It says in the Gemara, there's no comparison of learning something for the hundred first time and the hundredth time. Between a hundred and a hundred and one is incredible. If there's any repetition, it can, it can only help. It can only help. So when we look at Jewish meditation, first of all, a little, a little background for those old enough to remember this, that in, must have been, 66, is when the Beatles went to India and pictures were flashed all over the world the Beatles sitting there with, with beads and robes and, and meditating and for most people in the West this is like the first exposure to meditation other than the, let's say the beatniks or the bohemians who had heard of meditation and it became very popular and then all of a sudden people were talking about Jewish meditation it appeared that there's a new thing on the market well we have to we have to show that Judaism has something to say about meditation so we'll make up Jewish meditation but that is very far from the truth many many of you maybe have read the books of Arya Kaplan uh, meditation in the Bible, med- med- Jewish meditation, and meditation in Kabbalah. He explains how long meditation has been a part of the Jewish tradition, and how far back it goes, and how deeply embedded it is. So if you've never read these books, I highly recommend them by Arya Kaplan. He has three books on, on meditation. But the one meditation in the Bible really just explains how meditation has been a part and parcel of Jewish tradition all the way back, all the way back to Avram. That's not the subject of our discussion tonight, but it's, it's important to know that we weren't just jumping on the bandwagon. Anything, if you have a 4,000 year of history, certain things kind of go in and out of style. So Jewish meditation wasn't like real high in the agenda. Uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe in the 60s also made a very strong point that if all these Jewish kids are running off to either San Francisco or India to learn meditation, then it's time that we begin teaching meditation from our source. And, there, and since then there have been many, many different books about Jewish meditation. I've had the, the privilege, uh, David and I share the same teacher, uh, of Yitzhak Ginsburg. Uh, I've been a little bit closer to him because living in Israel. He has uh, been teaching Jewish meditation for 30 years now. One gets a sense of how broad and diverse Jewish meditation is. There are so many different forms that don't fit in the usual box that we think of as meditation. You can practice meditation almost anywhere at any time in countless different ways countless different ways tonight we're going to explore a couple of those ways 
and just have a, an overview. But the main thing is that we want to take these teachings tonight and then meditate to the, to the music. One of the very special things that Rob Ginsburg teaches, his, his classes are usually around two hours, two to two and a half hours. Which is, this reminds me, yesterday between Mincha and Myra, with absolutely no notice, they asked me to say the Devar Torah uh, at, at Eidos. So I said, how long do I have? He said, oh, three or four minutes. I thought to myself, I, don't, I can't do it with our tour in three or four minutes. That's like two and a half hours right. in Israel. Yeah, right. <laughs> so Rob Ginsburg has a hard time with under two and a half hours. It's very hard for him to, to do it in less than that. But very, very often, and for years, this, he closed almost every class with saying, now everyone should take this and meditate on it. Israel Ginsburg's teachings are very methodical, very organized, very clear categories and charts. So in other words, it's very easy to follow the steps. And he would would end all the time saying, now you should meditate on this. And so that gives us a very, very important clue about Jewish meditation that's very connected to Jewish learning. The typical Eastern meditation, and this is not a value judgment, is very, very connected to emptying the mind, coming to a place of calmness and inner inner peace, of uh, self-realization, seeing the white light, nirvana, and this, actually there are many Jewish meditations that follow the same uh, path in a sense. This is really just, we'll call it the, the, the stepping stone into Jewish meditation. Jewish meditation has two words for it. There are two words that are typically used. One is hit bonanut, from the word bina. What does bina mean? To understand. Being the means to understand. So this already gives us a, a clue as to the purpose of Jewish meditation is to understand something that I did not understand before the meditation. In other words, and it could be done through this, this calmness also. You come to a realization of your inner, um, inner soul, inner soul powers. Jewish meditation is much more intellectually active. And that's why it's, it's called Hid Bonanut, is to understand. And the Gemara, when they want to explain what does Bina really mean, what does understanding really mean, Lahavin Devar Vitoch Devar, to understand something within something else. So that gives us a second hint of where Jewish meditation is going. It's going into deeper and deeper levels of understanding. It's not just a surface. Understand that in the meditation, we peel away, in a sense, layers of 
outside information in order to get to the inside message. That's the word that Rabbi Ginsburg uses. Rabbi Kaplan uses a different word. He's bodedut. From the word boded or levad. Alone. So in other words, the idea of Jewish meditation or any meditation is there's a certain level of aloneness. Even though you could meditate with a hundred people in the room and you could do a meditation where everyone is sharing energy. But typically, typically, meditation is, is an inward exercise. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov took this idea and created a whole, t- a very creative, unique type of meditation called Hitz Bodhidut. It's not even, he started really the Balsham Tov before him. The idea of going out into nature and talking to God. Talking to God through tears, talking to God through dancing, through singing, through yelling, through prayer, through writing, through art, through uniting oneself with the nature around. In other words, there's no, it's totally open. And that's really the beautiful idea of Jewish meditation, is it's so open. It, anyone can evolve with it the way they want to. So then we would ask, so well, it sounds like everything is meditation. And so that is, the answer is, in a sense, yes. A person can turn anything into a meditation. Because in a Jewish sense of meditation, we're going to put two other words together with meditation. And that is kavana, visualization, and focus. In other words, one does not need an hour alone in total quiet meditating. One can meditate for five seconds. That's what's called having kavana, having intent. That's what we're taught that before we do a mitzvah, or as we're doing the mitzvah, we should have kavana, we should have intent. But what does that really mean? that can be stretched also by a lot of the, the Hasidic Rebbe's. They would stand in front of their Hanukkiah 10 minutes, an hour, meditating on what they were about to do. And then afterwards, they would sit by the candles and meditate on the candles. Or you could do that in five seconds. In other words, anytime we take our whole being and focus it in a purposeful intent with what we're doing, that becomes a Jewish meditation. An example of this is probably the the best known meditation that we have is the Shema. We say twice a day. Most people, how long does it take to, to say the, the six words of Shema? It doesn't take so long. But if we put our whole being into it, our whole being, 
that becomes a powerful meditation. Some of these teachings is what initially, I call it, turned me on to Jewish meditation because it's, it's so creative, graspable. And I've, I've really, I've done this. You know, when you're standing in the checkout counter, well, here, like if you have more than two people in line, they'll like open up a new thing we in Israel. It's not quite like that. Right? Anyone's been in the banks or the post offices or the grocery stores in Israel? Not quite like that. So, I, I, I have this one of my things, I hate to waste time. So, a lot of times I remember to bring a book of Tehillim, Psalms. So when I'm standing in line, like, if you're there for ten minutes, like, at least do something constructive. I have a, a certain meditation that I do, standing in line. So it's, it's not to waste the time, but to, in the, in the parlance, to center oneself. So this is just like a, a very quick overview. Actually, every night in the evening prayers, we say, you should meditate in them, meaning in the words of Torah, day and night. So in the evening service, it, if you look at the art scroll, it translates it as meditating them. This is a, a very, very important part of learning. Is we learn, but sometimes we forget to meditate on what we learn. Because when you learn, how many levels can you catch it at one time? But then when you go over it and, and dwell on it and pick it apart and put it back together. So that's why, again, the, the, the typical picture of meditating with your eyes closed is not, not absolutely necessary. You know, if, if, truthfully, if you're in a class, I think everyone's had this experience, sometimes you're in a class and half of you is listening, or a quarter of you is listening, or 90% of you are listening, but sometimes 100% of you is listening. The expression is you're hanging on every word. That in itself becomes a meditation. Because you're putting your whole being, your whole focus, I'm sure you've also had this experience when someone is speaking, and as they're speaking, you're coming up with three, what I call chidushim, three innovative ideas from what the person is saying. That is true heat ornament. The person says something, and your mind is already leaping one step, two step, three steps to him, like, oh, that's connected to that, oh, that's connected to that, that's connected to that. That experience is inside the meditation. That becomes the experience. We can also do this by ourselves, by just opening a sitter or a chumash or any particular book and picking out a verse that we, that we really relate to or you read a verse and then you read some commentary and then you think about it. And you think and think and think until new insight is born. So all of these are different types by the Hasidim, and that's what we're going to get to very soon. Music 
became the vehicle for all the different types of meditation. And I spoke to, to David about what we were going to do when we came up with this idea. He asked if I could talk to Rob Ginsburg and we could construct, according to the spirit, the different types of meditation. And I did that, actually. But I, I, I didn't think it was going to work for what we were doing. But I asked, well, where does music fit in? And listen to what he said. It's very, very beautiful. He said, music doesn't really fit in any particular of the series. He said that music is the vehicle between all of the spirits. Doesn't, doesn't, you can't like put it in any particular place because it can be used with all the different meditations. It, it can actually be the, let's say, the ladder, the rungs on the ladder to go from one meditation to another. But Ginsburg has this method that's connected to the seven heavens. And one ascends the seven heavens. But he said that music is one way, it's not the only way, but it's one of the ways to take us from level to level. So that's why music has always been important in Jewish tradition. Music in the temple was perhaps the cardinal experience other than the physical physical building and the the glory that the Kohanim and the Levim, the, the, the priests and the Levites represented. But the experience for most people in the temple was the music. That is what what made it so spiritual, made it so special. Because there was music all the time in the temple by the greatest orchestra and choir ever assembled. So when people would come and, okay, this is magnificent building and, and everything is like very glorious everything represented God's glory it was the music that, that produced the spiritual ambience that, that people that uplifted the people and so throughout Jewish history and especially by the Hasidim where music really was united with meditation so that's why it was called a fabrengen, or a tish, uh, when Hasidim get together and they, they learn, make some lachayans, and they sing. When they sing, this, usually the melody is carried on for 5, 10, 15 minutes. Because, and people are swaying because people enter into the meditation. And many of the nigunim, were written with Kabbalistic intentions. And some, and some of these have been handed down. Actually, Rob Ginsburg has a tape. I only heard half of it, where he goes through the Spirot and describes ten different types of, of song. Very, very, very fascinating. So, a lot of times when the Rebbe's would can't say they would compose. When people ask Rabbi Shlomo, how many songs have you composed? 
I've never composed any songs. I just catch them when they come from heaven. So when the Rebbe's would tune in to this heavenly music, they would have intent. And sometimes, like I said, these, the intentions were handed down, what, why the song has the structure that it does. So that becomes even a, a deeper meditation when you know the kabbana be, behind the one who, who, who did it. And so therefore, all these different things become means of meditation. The sirot become a very powerful means of meditation. It is a ladder, going up and down a ladder. Also, one of the models, of course, the Hebrew letters, and words come very, very potent. This was, uh, I just saw it, I actually saw it twice, because I was so taken with it. But if anyone saw, saw the movie, the, the B season, anyone seen it? Everyone should. I was blown away from this movie. I just saw it two months ago and I watched it again. I was, I'm still amazed that Hollywood put out this movie. I'm not going to tell you the whole plot and everything, but it has to do the the central focus of the movie is on a type of Jewish meditation from a great Kabbalist called Avram Abulafi. Have you seen the movie? I read the book. Yeah. So I didn't read the book, so I don't, I don't know how true the movie is to the book. I have no idea, but the movie was... was I don't know. It, was, it, it just captured something, but it was just amazing to see Hollywood take this type of Jewish meditation and have it be the focus of this, this movie. It was all around the Hebrew letters and, and meditating on the Hebrew letters. And so one last structure that I'm going to mention, and then we'll move into the music here, is the different structures of the soul. It's actually from a, a Midrash, but Hasidic thought uh, really built on this idea that there are five levels to the soul. These five levels correspond to the five Kabbalistic worlds and the four letters of God's name and the tip of the Yud of the first letter is really like five levels in God's name. The idea is that if you have five, three sets of five, say five sets of the, of the soul, five levels of the soul, five Kabbalistic worlds, and God's four-letter name, but the first letter is actually two levels. So you have a structure there. And, and the meditation becomes like connecting the dots. You have three sets of fives. Well, they must, they must connect. How do they connect? And then by delving into that, and obviously the more one learns, the richer the connections can be. So with that in mind, that in mind, and one other teaching that is in the, the book I wrote, The Mystical Power of Music, and I took, I'm going to tell you in like three sentences of the entire book, but the idea is that music are vibrations. That's what music is. Thank you.
the, the string is vibrating. That's what creates the sound. And the sound itself are waves. <coughs> Hitting the eardrum, it then vibrates and then sends messages to the brain. Without going into it too deeply, we see in Kabbalistic thought how God creates the world from speech, but even more so from music, from song. But God, usually we say God speaks the world into being. In the prayers, every day is Baruch She'amar Rahaya Olam. Blessed is the one who spoke and the world came into being. But a deeper understanding is blessed the one who sang and the world came into me. And then when we connect that with uh, quantum physics and the idea of vibrations and frequencies and waves, and you put it all together, I, I took a whole book to explain this, when you put it all together, this inspired me to write this Meditation. I don't even call it a nigun. It's a meditation, and it's called the strings of the soul, because the soul also vibrates to certain energy, makes the soul sing. So what I'd like everyone to do: eyes open, eyes closed, whatever, whatever feels good, is. The idea is, is to try to, first of all, unite with the music. Try to take away any extraneous thoughts. And try to get into the music. And then let the music open up the soul. Everyone will visualize different things, but the idea is to, to try to get to deeper and deeper levels of the soul. For example, we talk about in Shabbat, we have what's called a neshama yitera, an extra level of soul. And the question is often asked, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to have an extra level of soul? Where does it come from? Does it magically just filter down from heaven when we light the candles on Shabbat? Like, where does it come from? Or is it something that's inside us the whole time? But we were too busy during the week to notice. So the answer is really both. There is a level where we say that God sanctified the seventh day and put into the world something special and science. But it's also just as true that that extra level of soul is in us all the time. We just have to have to get there. And I'll just mention very, very quickly for those who this might help them that the five levels of soul are the nefesh, it's called the animal or instinctive soul, the behavioristic animal-like soul, not in a negative way, reality. Then the Ruach, which is connected to our emotions. Then the Neshama, which is connected to intellect. The Chaya, the word Chaya, life force. 
which is connected to will, divine will, and Yechida, which is connected to what we'll call the, the divine point that activates us, makes us unique. Yechida means unique. So that unique spark within us, which is really coming from God, that's called the highest level of soul. So if everyone can just try to relax into this, and to try, just try to contact that neshama yitzra, that extra level of soul that might be sleeping, and actually this, this song is good to put people to sleep, but here we want to wake people up. Rabbi Nachman used to say, in, in the world, wine puts people to sleep. He said, but on Purim and on Pesach, wine wakes us up. So this, this is a lullaby, but it's meant to awaken us. <laughs>
Some of these ideas I'm going to talk about more Sunday night at, at Beis Menachem at 7 o'clock. But for our, our purposes here, there, there's a story in the Gemara about David Amel, King David. And it said that he would not sleep a whole night. He would sleep so like a horse, or what we call catnaps sleep for an hour, half an hour, two hours. But he would never sleep a whole night. <coughs> so what did he do? How, how would he not sleep a whole night? So he would put his harp over his bed. And the Gemara says that at midnight, a north wind would come and blow through the harp and make the strings vibrate and create music and wake him up and he would be up the rest of the night singing, writing the psalms studying, praying meditating crying many of the psalms said he cried a lot joyous so as in any midrash or gemara you have to analyze every part of it the question is, why, why does it say the north wind? Why not just a wind? Why a north wind? It's a phone. Now that same word, if you change the vowels a little, is part of the Pesach Seder. Safun. That's when we find the Afikoman. It's one of the 15 steps of the, of the Seder. Either we hid, the, uh, depending on your custom, either you hid it from your children, or the children hid it from you. So that's when we bring the Afikoman. We reveal that which is hidden. So what's alluded to here is a north wind blowing through the, his, his heart was that the source of music is coming from very hidden place. And that's why it, it affects us so deeply. Because it resonates with our unconscious and subconscious and superconscious. It sounds very similar to a, a, a dream. And a dream is the language of subconscious and unconscious. So that's a beautiful connection of why when we listen to music, we go into like a dream state. So if, it's, if it's classical music and it's a 20 minute piece. When, when I was in college, I was, I was addicted to listening to Ravi Shankar. And the, and the ragas were 20 to 30 minutes. You know, there's a line between meditating and dreaming 
and listening to music is, is a very thin line. A very, very thin line. So sometimes I call meditation a controlled dream. Allow ourselves to enter in to a dreamlike state. And Shabbos, I call a 24-hour meditation. The, the typical way of meditating, even though everything I set up to now was the opposite of this, you can meditate on one, on one foot at any time, but still the typical way we think of, if you want to meditate, first of all you clear your calendar, you, you, you take the phone off the hook, turn off your telephone, you draw the blinds, right? You make sure you have no appointments. And then you feel like relaxed enough that I can, I can meditate. So what do we do for Shabbos? Same thing. Turn off the TV, turn off the radio, turn off the telephone. Put our work away. The whole setup of Shabbos is to enter into a, well, look at a controlled meditation or a dream. That's why sometimes Shabbos is like, like a dream. Like a good dream. Like the best dream. <laughs> the best dream. And just even the way we walk slowly. And it's just everything is, like, everything is dreamlike. And of course a big part of Shabbos is singing. Thank God for Kaubach, Dominic. That brought back. Rav Shalman didn't in a sense, innovate anything. In the, in the early years of, of the Hasidim, that's how they all got it. But then it kind of uh, melted away a little bit. And the Hasidim didn't make it up either. So this prayer in the temple, it was, it was so connected to music, totally connected to music. That's why at the end of davening every day we say the, the song that the Levites used to sing in the temple each day. But it wasn't just that one song. They were, they were playing all the time. Playing all the time. So we'll add now the idea of, of, of visualization. It's, a, it's like a pretty big thing now. Right? But it's, it's a very powerful, powerful tool. So there's Rav Shlomo used to say something to us all the time. Um, let's say we got together late for a learning. A lot of times he wouldn't start his learning until 10, 11 at night. You know, people are exhausted at that point. There's no energy there. And it's like, so he used to say all the time, he said, Chavra, let's pretend we're happy. Let's pretend we're happy. And that would like break the, the spell, right? And it would really work. It would really work. I see that there are books out now. One I think is called Happiness is a Serious Business. <laughs> Sometimes you have, to, you have to work at it a little bit. Just a few weeks ago, we were learning with Rod Ginsburg from, from Tanya, chapter 14. It's an amazing... And he was teaching from the Tanya. And sometimes Tanya is called Sefer HaBenoni. Meaning, there's three categories. 
a, a righteous person, an intermediate, and a not such good person. In this book called the Tanya, the message of the whole book is we're not Sadiqin. Like we're not going to reach the level of Sadiqin. Even though the one who wrote it is a tremendous Sadiq, but he's writing like Halavai were it so that we were Bainami, we're intermediates. And he wrote it in a way like to be, a, to be an intermediate is like a pretty big thing. So try to be an intermediate. But then this one chapter, out of the blue, he says, but sometimes you can pretend to be a tzaddik. And if you pretend enough, you can really be a tzaddik. So it reminds me of the same thing that Rav would say. Let's pretend you're happy. You say it a few times and you start to feel happy. So what I'd like to do, because simcha, joy, is such an important thing. Such an important thing. Rabbi Nachman said, Mitzvah gedola liyot besimcha tamid. It's a, it's a big mitzvah to be always joyous. They say the, the, the medium is the message. So this past Hanukkah, after davening in the morning, after davening hollow, with a lot of singing. So I, I picked up my dulcimer, and this, this whole Hanukkah was just so good. Right? It's just one of those holidays that just everything was going right, everything was like... And I was just sitting there thinking like, I, I'm so happy, it's Hanukkah. I'm just really so happy it's Hanukkah. And this niggin came out. And, and it expressed my joy. So this is what I was saying before, that sometimes when the Hasidim would know the intent of the, of the song that the Rebbe made up and, and knew why he made it up, and sometimes even the day and the reason, is there's more fuel to, to really get into it. What I'd like everyone to do, with your permission of course, is I will play this nigun, but everyone should look inside and find something to be joyous about. We all have our problems, we all have our obstacles, we all have our good days, we all have our bad days. It's very, very important to be able to always find something to be joyous about. And even if we have to pretend a little bit, if we're good actors, so it can become real. It can become real.
Okay, one more segment. And that is a connection of music to prayer. So we actually we've mentioned it a little bit already. So everyone knows what gematria is. One of the most important gematrias is the connection between shira, which is song, equals 515, and tefillah, which also equals 515. Now there's the essence of prayer, is song, and the essence of song is prayer. And here we don't mean necessarily prayer in the formal sense, which, but it, it's that also. But prayer as a state of mind. I call it a prayerful state of mind. Where one is always connected to the Creator. One is always, whether one is crying or laughing or complaining or objecting but one is always doing it in a prayerful, prayerful way. And that's very, very connected to song. That's why everyone has their favorite song when they're feeling depressed, their favorite song when they're feeling happy, favorite song when they're in love, whatever it is, there's certain songs in our, in our lives that represent a certain emotion to us, a certain milestone in our life or something. And it, it, it covers the full gamut from crying to anger to I don't understand. It's a little bit like Tevya and Fiddler on the Roof. He's always talking to God. And he's always praying. He's always in the state of of prayer. And so therefore, David the Melech said, and I am prayer. What he meant by it is that prayer is not something I do, it's something I am. I am prayer. So I want to play as uh, one of the few songs that Rabbi Shalom used to sing of other rabbis, even though he knew all of them. He had so many songs coming down that at a certain point that's, that's all he sang. But this is one of them that he taught us. I remember one time after singing this for a long time he, he was just, I remember it was a small group of people there and he said have you ever heard such a beautiful nigga? So for Rav Shlomo to say this about a nigga is like, that's pretty special. And it's from Rabbi Levi Yitzhak of Bagicha. The song came down to us. So what I'd like everyone to do is, is find that prayerful place. A place that even, even sometimes when we're, we're upset with God. But if it can be in a prayerful way, Moshe Rabbeinu, who told God, wipe me out of your book. I'll have no part of this. You know, you can't do this. I won't let you. <laughs> or Avram Avinu, who said to God, can the God of righteousness do something not righteous? 
But this didn't take away from their faith. This was actually a full expression of their faith that even when they were had those feelings, that they still could be honest with God, could still talk to God. So that's what I call a prayerful place. And it goes without saying when one is joyful or thankful or feels the glory and the awesomeness of the world and wants to praise God. So if everyone can find that place where really just where we connect to God and then we have that faith that no matter what situation we're in that we can we can turn to God.
generation, this Negron is, is getting around. And I also absolutely fell in love with it. And some words from the Song of the Sea. Azi Zimrat Ka Vayahi Lili Yeshua. God is my, my strength and my song and my salvation. And this job is it's part of the Song of the Sea. It's one of the ten archetypal songs in creation. <laughs> Bye. 
چاہتا 